we are jumping straight into the Word because we've got a few other things we're doing today, including some wonderful baby dedications. And we're in the middle or the final part of a series around our core values as a church. And values serve as kind of guidelines and guardrails to ministry, to life. And they're not just the church's ones. I hope in the way they've been communicated. And I've loved watching what has happened in the last few weeks, uh, how the different values have been presented and talked about and celebrated, that they're guidelines for your own life. And I'm really excited about the two that I have to speak to today. And um, I think you're going to connect with it. It's going to speak to your heart. It's going to actually help you in decisions and in continuing to walk with Jesus. Or perhaps if you haven't yet made that decision, it'll help you make that decision. And the two we're looking at today is courageous generosity. Now, right there, some of you are a little bit nervous. We're talking about money, courageous generosity, but it's actually not just about money. It's about a generous lifestyle. And then the second one, celebrating grace. And generosity and grace are like the two sides of a coin. They're interconnected and they're both actually centred in the concept of grace rather than obligation, duty or legalism. So let's talk about being courageously generous. And, and the simple question that is being asked of each of us, am I living a generous life? The Bible says of Jesus in Mark 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and give His life as a ransom for many. No matter how many times I read or speak that verse out, it never ceases to impact my life and cause me to have a sense of awe and wonder. The God of the universe becomes human, becomes one of us, fully human, fully God, humbles himself and comes to serve humanity. If anyone had a right to demand service, he couldn't. He could have, but he chose to serve and to give his life to us. And according to that definition, generosity is not just about being generous with money. That's one expression of it or material things. It's actually a lifestyle of learning to give of yourself to others. And there's many different ways we can do that. In fact, Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says, Generous people plan to do what is generous and they stand firm in their generosity. And it's kind of like the spirit of generosity. If it really captures your heart, your life, you kind of think, how can I be generous? And it's generous, yeah, with some financial things, maybe in small gifts to others, but words of encouragement. It's discovering your gifts and using those. That's generosity. It's a whole lifestyle thing. And so encouraging us not to narrow it simply to a financial thing. But we're talking about courageous generosity. And there's two chapters in the Bible that 
are centered around a group of people's courageous generosity. And it's 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapters 8 and 9, where Paul is celebrating the Macedonians. And I want to read the first few verses of that chapter because they set the scene to some principles we want to extract around generosity. Now, in this instance, Paul is talking about taking up a financial offering to help with the relief of some people who are experiencing famine. So this is centering, but the principles are about a generous life, a generous response to opportunity before us. So in 2 Corinthians 8, I want to read verse 1 to 5. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I I, I don't want to take too much time just on that sentence, but just think about the four things that are stated in it. A very severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, and rich generosity. It's kind of like, how do you get that into a description about a group of people and their response to an opportunity to help others who are in a famine? Just think of that. A severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, and rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So I just want to pull out a few dot points as it were, and we could speak to each of them a lot longer, but this is kind of just throwing something out. You can watch it again. You can jot them down. You can take photos of the screen and you can do the same if you're watching in our online campus today. Paul does not begin firstly talking about generosity, but talking about grace. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. It's the Greek word charis. And that word grace appears eight times in these two chapters. So while he's talking about financial things and generosity and giving into this famine relief offering, he keeps reminding us and the church at Corinth who haven't responded that well and he's trying to exhort them to respond. He keeps talking about grace in the context of generosity, not duty, not obligation, not I have to, not I must, but this flow of God's grace in a situation. And in fact, he identifies in these two chapters that the exhortation to generosity is based completely on God's generosity towards us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, speaking of His position as God in heaven, 
Though he was rich in everything, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And clearly he's talking about far more than material richness here. He's talking about the richness of God's blessing and mercy, the salvation that Jesus brings. He's talking about in everything what Jesus went through was so that our lives would be enriched. And I do believe it includes the material aspects of life because God knows what we need. But please don't narrow that passage just to that. It's this incredible thing. Paul says, you see the grace of God's generosity. And the only way to respond to that is to respond in like. How can my life become generous in the way that Jesus served and gave Himself for me? The second thing is clearly, and I've highlighted this, the generosity of the Macedonian church was incredibly courageous. And that's where we anchored on these words, courageous generosity. It's not just an attitude of giving the dregs, the leftovers of your life to others or to God, the leftovers of your gifts, your time or your finance or your material things or your words of encouragement. It's, it's not just the leftover. Oh, let me see what I've got left over. It's saying, no, I want to do something extraordinary. And again, I highlight that verse in the, the opening passage where it says, in the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So even when they were under extraordinary pressure themselves, there's this welling up of joy and generosity because of a working of grace within their lives. And it resulted in something that was quite supernatural. Paul says, I testify. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. He's kind of going, I don't know how this happened. The extraordinary offering that was taken up for the relief of poverty where there was a severe famine. He says, these people who are under pressure found God working in their midst and they gave something that was quite extraordinary. And I want to encourage you to lift your faith when it comes to areas of generosity, whether it's in the use of your gifts, your talents, your time in serving, whether it is in, yes, practical giving of finance and in this, like in our legacy offering and all that kind of thing. Clearly in all that Paul is saying here, generosity, and he highlights it, is a privilege It's not a duty, it's not an obligation. And listen to these words, and I'm just highlighting things, and I'd love you as homework, I won't check up on it, not even on the online campus, I won't check up on it, but to read these two chapters a few times, and maybe in a few different translations, to get the full sense of this flow of grace and blessing that Paul is talking about. He says, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. Now remember, these are people in a severe trial and in experiencing extreme poverty. And they'll say, no, please, because it's almost like Paul said, look, we know what you guys are going through. You don't need to help out here. And they go, no, please don't leave us out of this. They pleaded for the privilege of giving. They pleaded wanting to participate in what was happening through the church at that time. 
And he says, because of that, they exceeded our expectations. You you can almost hear Paul's excitement of these people that have connected to the grace of God, to the generosity of God, and are seeking to express it themselves. It's inspiring. In these two chapters, it's clear that God wants for you and for me to excel in a number of things, but including generosity. And I'm just reading the Word of God here in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 7. He says, and he's speaking to the church at Corinth, but since you excel in everything, and he lists some of the things they excel in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, there's a passion, there's a zeal in the church at Corinth. In love, and remember Paul's had to school them on how to love, 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, we have kindled in the love we have kindled in you, see to it that you excel in this grace of giving. And I love that phrase in this exhortation, excelling these things, but it's excel in the grace of giving. Not the duty, not the obligation, not I have to, not I gotta. It's I wanna give me an opportunity to be generous in my time, in my gifts, in my words, in my encouragement, and yes, in my finances and the stewardship of material things. God wants you and I to excel in generosity. Generosity is also an outworking of Christ's Lordship in our lives. And there's a whole topic we did a few years ago where Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can serve God with mammon, but You can't have two masters. And there's something about settling issues around tithing, giving, that settle the issue of lordship in your life. And he says this, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I want you to notice the surrender of your life, of all that you have to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beginning point. And often that's where the tension is. God, can I trust you? And there's this incredible invitation in the book of Malachi where God literally says, I dare you and see what happens when you begin to be generous in your finances towards the house of God and to giving yourself first to God, surrendering lordship of all that you have to the Lord. Generosity also is a thing of willingness not how much is in your resource. Now, please don't take that as me encouraging you to be reckless with your finances. We actually do a whole lot of courses, cap money and other things on teaching people biblical principles of how to manage their finances, including good budgeting. So this is not like throw that all out the window and just give everything you've got and then you're in trouble. It's not that spirit at all. But generosity starts with willingness, not how much resource you have. I want to give, so God, show me how I can give. And again, this is an exhortation to be generous in your time, in the use of your gifts, your talents, your abilities, in your words of encouragement to others, and yes, in the stewardship of your finances. For if there is willingness to give, Paul says, The gift is acceptable according to what one has and not according to what you don't have. And so within what you have, if there's a willingness, you'll find a way to give something. 
proportion to your ability. Generosity, and this is a big one, and I'm about to close in on this topic and go to celebrating grace. But generosity is a decision, not an emotional reaction. And I really wanna just speak to that a little bit because sometimes we see a need, whether it's something that we've just presented in the legacy offering, or you're watching TV and one of those ads comes on for people who are helping others in other countries and you see the pain, the tragedy, the loss of others. Sometimes there's an emotional response to that or almost a response of guilt, I've got to do something. And we give out of that rather than out of planned, intentional giving. And it's not wrong that your heart should be moved with compassion. In fact, that sometimes God will prompt you. I want you to do something extra. Well, I want you to do that. But it's in the context that it's a clear decision, just not an emotional reaction to something. Emotional giving is not good stewardship. And I hope you hear what I'm saying here. Being prompted and moved with compassion, being in the context, I know my budget, I know what I've got. And yeah, in this instance, I'm going to give a little bit extra. That's fine but not just a reaction of emotion, it's intentional. Listen to what it says here. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. A decision needs to be made, not just a reaction to a need. Each one of you should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, notice Paul's hitting this thing, don't do it out of obligation or duty. Do it out because you intended, you chose to do it, you planned to do it, you looked at your resources, you added some faith to it and said, this is what I'm gonna do. And that's kind of what the church at Macedonia did. They gave out of poverty and trial, but they made some great decisions along with it. And generosity always activates God's ability in our lives. And there's quite a few references to this in these two chapters. I'm going to read just one. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Remember, he's talking about financial giving here. But here comes the grace thing again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. And you see the context, Paul is saying, when you start responding to God and to His generosity towards you with a generous spirit in the giving of your time, the use of your gifts, the words of encouragement, the financial things that you will choose to do. He says, you encounter God's Response back. He will pour out more grace and notice all grace, all sufficiency, all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. There's something that happens. You cannot, somebody said long, long time ago, outgive God. James Dobson said, God does not need our money, but you and I need the experience of giving it. And you should remember, Paul says when he's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, you should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And so in this value, our goal is that each one of us respond to God's generosity in Christ by using our God-given gifts, talents, resources to serve and benefit others. So let's come to the second value that I'm speaking to this morning, the issue of celebrating grace. And I struggled on this. I have so much to say on the grace of God. It's one of my favourite topics. But even in preparing this and cutting out a whole lot of stuff to try and keep to the time limit and stick to it and honour your time and everybody else's, there were some fresh and new things that just touched my heart. The first thing is to just say right up front, a reminder that all of us are saved by grace. And you might be on a journey asking questions about God and salvation and you kind of have this thing, well, if I'm just good enough and I do enough good things and the outweigh the bad things, well, then maybe I'll get to heaven. There's a lot of questions around that and I think it's a really dangerous concept because how many good things do you need to do? When do you know you've done enough? And will God actually approve of that? And the Bible is actually clear. You don't get into heaven. You don't get the gift of eternal life by doing good things. Having received eternal life, good things should flow out of your life. Totally different concept. And so Paul in Ephesians says this, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And and to put it simply, that, that kind of before you say yes to Jesus, you are spiritually dead. I don't watch the zombie movies, but I've seen some of the ads. You're kind of one of those. Please don't be insulted. I'm trying to illustrate when I'm talking about from a spiritual perspective. But when you say yes to Jesus and the grace of God flows into your life, the God who is rich in mercy because of His great love for you begins to pour out salvation into your life based on what Jesus has done. It's got nothing to do with what you and I have done. And I wonder how many people are nervous because they're going, well, I'm not good enough for God. You and I will never be good enough for God, except through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by grace that you are saved. But then flows the question, am I living in grace and extending grace to others? And I've got a few kind of questions to just tease this out. Are you being shaped by the grace of God? Is grace shaping your life? Are you being strengthened by grace? These are all biblical declarations that grace strengthens you. Are you being emboldened by grace? And perhaps for some of us, are you being softened by grace? Are you being shaped by grace, strengthened by grace, emboldened by grace, softened by grace? And Paul writes to the church at Galatia and he says, you started so well in grace and I'm oversimplifying the argument, but this is the essence. You started so well in grace. Why do you now think you're going to get God's pleasure and be made perfect by your efforts. He says, who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell over you? And I think we all live in this tension 
And God wants good fruit and good works coming out of our lives. But based on the flow of grace, not because I'm trying to earn God's approval. I can't earn salvation. And having come to be saved, to be forgiven and cleansed, I shouldn't continue to have that mindset. I'm earning God's approval. Or by being doing wrong things, I'm earning His disapproval. And he says this in Galatians 5 and verse 4. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, that's what some were saying, you've got to go back to the the laws, a whole heap of them, hundreds of them. He says, you're actually cutting yourself off from Jesus. The minute you step back in, I ought to, I should, I must, I got to kind of legalism. And and they may not be the Jewish laws, but we all make up our own rules for our lives. He says, the minute you do that, you're actually cutting yourself off from Jesus. And you are fallen away from God's grace. Now, it doesn't say you've lost your salvation. Please don't read that into the text. But it says you're falling away from the flow of grace that God wants in your life. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12 and verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Another translation, see to it that you don't miss out on the grace of God. And he's speaking to believers there. And I want to exhort you, if you've said yes to Jesus, don't miss out on the grace of God. Grace has saved you, but it's the flow of grace that will enrich your life, that will make you more fruitful. That will embolden you and strengthen you and transform you. It's grace that does that. Max Licata has this great phrase. And in fact, I'd encourage you to read his book simply entitled Grace. It's wonderful. It's got some wonderful insights. But it says, grace more than we deserve and greater than we imagine. Just think of that in terms of where you are right now in your life. That God is saying to you, I've got grace for you. You don't deserve it. And it's more than you could ever imagine. God's grace doesn't fail, but sometimes we fail to take advantage of it. And today, I want you to imagine what would happen if with both hands, you grasped this message of grace and let it fill your heart, renew your mind and control your actions. Imagine what would begin to change in your life. And I'm trying to seed something here. Imagine if you actually got hold of that. I know I don't deserve it, but I'm going to receive it because God offers His grace to me. Imagine what begin to change from the inside out in terms of your lives. Another translation of Hebrews 12 verse 15, don't miss out or fall short of the grace of God. It says, watch over each other to make sure no one misses the revelation of God's grace. And maybe some of us here are going, I actually don't think I've got a full revelation. I'm not saying I have a full revelation or I don't have a revelation of God's grace. Well, can I encourage you where you are right now to say, God, Would you in the coming weeks just begin to reveal your grace to me? And like I said, I'd urge you to read Max Licardo's book, Simply Called Grace. 
or Philip Yancey's one is another one of my favourite. What's so amazing about grace? Honestly, they will do something in your life and break something free. Imagine if grace became a primary revelation that shapes and drives and directs your life. The important thing when we start talking about grace, while you'll find mention of it throughout the New Testament in particular, it's not something to be engaged with simply intellectually. Now, I'm not saying switch your brain off. Please use it. But it's actually a relationship with a person where you encounter God's grace. And that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation and the step away from legalism and obligation to get God's pleasure and penance and all the rest of it, said this, Should anyone knock at my heart and say, who lives here? I should reply, not Martin Luther, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is, in the embrace in the, in the embracing of Jesus, you will discover the grace of God more than any other way. Yeah, it'll engage your mind, but more than anything, grace needs to engage your heart. John, who writes a lot about the grace of God, says the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. And we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want you to catch this. He says the Word, the eternal God stepped into our lives, took His dwelling, tabernacled amongst us, took on humanity, didn't just borrow a body, took on humanity. And he says, and we saw the glory of that. And then he describes what that glory is. Someone who was full of grace and truth. You see, when often we talk about the glory of God, we think of bright shining lights. We think of something kind of a little bit scary, weird. And I think the glory of God is awesome. And there are many aspects to God's glory. But Moses even when he had gone to receive the covenant of law, up on the mountain, says to God, would you show me your glory? And I don't know what he was expecting, but I don't think it was how God responded. Would you show me your glory? Listen to what God says in response to that. He says, okay, I'll do that. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. The Lord there is Yahweh, the covenant God. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have will, will have compassion. It wasn't bang, lights, dazzling, all the rest of it. And there's an aspect to that in God's glory. It's God of light. The revelation of glory to Moses was the revelation of mercy and compassion. And so perhaps we should just think a little bit differently about glory. God's glory then is supremely His goodness towards us, His favour towards us, His kindness towards us, His grace towards us through the Lord Jesus Christ. What flows from this is also, am I extending grace to others? 
And therein is the whole topic on forgiveness. Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, Paul says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And so our goal in this is that we learn to speak grace to others as we encounter them, regardless of their status, their position, their behaviour towards us. Nobody said this is easy, but God's wanting that flow of grace for us to receive and then to give. Philip Yancey said, grace is the only force in the universe powerful enough to break the chains that enslave us. Grace alone melts ungrace. And in all the ungrace, He invented the Word, He created it for a purpose. And we see so much ungrace in our world, around this planet. And I love what He says, the only thing that melts that is the grace of God. The only thing that truly melts a human heart is the grace of God. And we continually need to encounter God's grace. Max Licardo, forgive me for quoting this, but it's just, it was so brilliant. Speaking of the prodigal son, Luke 15. Grace hugged the stink out of the prodigal son and scared the hate out of Paul and pledges to do the same in us. The Scripture says, this prodigal son wasted his father's inheritance fell into such decline that he ended up living with pigs and fighting with them for food. And in the Jewish mind, you couldn't have fallen any further. But he says, I will arise. I'll go back to my father's house. I'll say to him, I've sinned against you and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like a hired servant. And so he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, the father ran to meet him filled with compassion, threw his arms around him and kissed him. That's what Philip Yancey is talking about. Grace kissed the stink of pigs off the prodigal son. Just think of that. What, what, what do you feel is stinking up your life? Not asking for a show of hands. The Father's embrace, the Father's kisses, the Father's mercy, the Father's compassion, the grace of God will do more to transform you than any legal requirement would.